We're in Luke chapter 22 this morning. We're going to pick up with verse 7 as we continue now to make our way ever closer to that act by which we have been redeemed. We come this morning to a description of that Passover, what we call the Last Supper. We pick up with verse 7 of chapter 22 of the Gospel of Luke. Then came the first day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. And Jesus sent Peter and John saying, go and prepare the Passover for us so that we may eat it. They said to him, where do you want us to prepare it? And he said to them, when you have entered the city, a man will meet you carrying a pitcher of water. Follow him into the house that he enters. And you, will, and you shall say to the owner of the house, the teacher says to you, where is the guest room in which I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large, un, a large furnished upper room. Prepare it there. And they left and found everything just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. When the hour had come, he reclined at the table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat the Passover with you before I suffer. For I say to you, I shall never again eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he said, take this and share it among yourselves. For I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine from now on until the kingdom of God comes. And when he had taken some bread and given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them and said, This is my body, which is, for, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup after, uh, in the same way, he took the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup which is poured out for you, is the new covenant in my blood. I'm so used to saying Paul's version of this in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Well, the Passover in Jesus' day was a festival of immense scale. Huge crowds descended upon Jerusalem, probably numbering in the hundreds of thousands, which given the size of that ancient city, constituted a vast multitude. Accommodations for sleeping and feasting would have been scarce, to say the least. Long in advance of Passover, Jerusalem began to pulse with greater than usual commercial activity. Many of the pilgrims were merchants who arrived early to sell their wares. You read about this in Matthew 21 and John chapter 2. Their cries filled the air as they stood in those crowded streets and hawked everything from jewelry to spices. And their voices mixed with the voices of the beggars who would have clogged the gates of the city. The major purchase of the week, of course, would have been a sacrificial sheep or a goat, preferably a lamb. 
It was required that the people then band together in groups of ten or more to eat what had been sacrificed in one sitting. The day of sacrifice was given entirely to preparations for this feast. A massive assembly of priests arrived at the temple early on that day, The priests had long ago been divided up into 24 divisions, and these divisions normally would rotate through the temple a week at a time throughout the year, performing the ministry of the temple. But during the Passover, all 24 divisions would come together at once. They were there, assembled in Jerusalem, and the first duty of the priests would have been to burn all the leaven that had been ceremonially collected by candlelight and spoon the preceding night. By noon, all of the work would have ceased. At three o'clock in the afternoon, the ritual slaughtering began. This was completed in three huge shifts. When the first group entered in and the temple court was filled, the gates of the court would have been closed. A priest's shofar played a sustained blast and the sacrifices began. The pilgrims came approaching two long rows of priests holding basins of silver and gold, and each Israelite slaughtered his own offering, and the priest caught the blood in the basin, which was then tossed at the base of the altar. As the one who had come to offer the sacrifice then left the temple, he did so, carrying upon his back the slain lamb and the skin of that lamb draped over his shoulder. That evening, the Passover was observed in a home or in a room reserved for that occasion. The lamb was roasted on a branch taken from a pomegranate tree and made into a spit. Inside, the company dressed in white and reclined at tables with the leader at the head. And this took place among every family all over Jerusalem as hundreds of thousands of people who did not live in Jerusalem descended upon the city. Which means, if you like lamb, it was a glorious week. If you don't like lamb, it would be a difficult week as the scent of roasted lamb emanating from every square inch of the city filled the air. In Jesus' time, the celebration had added elements beyond which the Old Testament had commanded. There was a Seder, that is a set order of service. The celebrants would have reclined at the table and the host would have spoken about each of the foods on the table, describing for all those assembled how each element of the Passover meal related to their deliverance from Egypt. The bitter herbs recalled the bitter slavery which they had endured. 
The stewed fruit by its color and consistency recalled the misery of making bricks for Pharaoh. The roasted lamb brought to their remembrance the lamb's blood applied to the doorposts of their homes and how the destroyer passed over them as it destroyed the firstborn of Egypt. This Passover celebration would have continued and concluded rather late into the night, but afterwards many of the celebrants would have returned to the streets to continue their celebration. Think Times Square on New Year's Eve. Others, however, would have returned to the temple to await the reopening of the gates at midnight so they could spend the rest of the evening in worship and prayer. It's all of that which provides the background for what we find in our passage this morning, what we have come to call the Last Supper. You see that supper described for us in verses 7 through 13. Then came the first day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. Luke's mention of the day of unleavened bread in conjunction with the Passover sets the chronology for us. It it fixes the date. By the Hebrew calendar, the lamb was slain on the 14th day of Nisan, between 3 and 5, and at 6 p.m., when the new day began for the Jews, the 15th of Nisan, the Passover meal was eaten thus also beginning the week of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, stretching from the 15th to the 21st of that month. Luke is also very precise about instructions which Jesus gave to Peter and John regarding the Passover preparations. He said to Peter and John, Go and prepare the Passover for us so that we may eat it. They said to him, where do you want us to prepare it? And he said to them, when you have entered the city, a man will meet you carrying a pitcher of water. Follow him into the house that he enters. And you shall say to the owner of the house, the teacher says to you, where is the guest room in which I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large furnished upper room. Prepare it there. Now, as you read that, It almost feels like something out of a spy novel. As if Peter and John are being sent on some kind of covert undercover mission. And that's exactly what was happening. Jesus was quite aware of Judas' intent to betray him. And it didn't take divine omniscience to figure out that the traitor would seek to accomplish his betrayal at a time when Jesus and the disciples were alone and isolated. If Jesus had let it be known where that meal would occur, Judas would have the time to inform upon them, and the meal would not have taken place from a human perspective, and the institution of the Lord's Supper would not have been given to the church. So Jesus himself had prearranged the place and the secret signs by which Peter and John would find it. Women normally carried water jars, while men carried water skins. 
Thus, their guide would have been easily recognizable because it would have been out of the usual. I can't help thinking that Peter and John could have made use of those secret decoder rings we used to get in boxes of cereal. (laughs) Cracker jacks. (laughs) Of course, they didn't need that because Jesus had prepared everything. And it all went according to plan. Verse 13 tells us that they left and found everything just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. And the one who owned the house led them to a large room above his home that was, we are told, furnished, indicating that the room had everything that was necessary for the celebration of this Passover meal. Peter and John then would have gone off to purchase a lamb. Having purchased the lamb, they would have gotten in line, and when it was their turn, one of them would have taken a knife and slaughtered that lamb. And then when the blood of that lamb had been shed, they would have taken that lamb back to the house, perhaps presenting the skin to the owner of the home. They would have put that lamb on a pomegranate spit, and while they were roasting that lamb, they would have waited for Jesus and the other disciples to arrive. And from the onset of this near final event, we see Jesus in control of every aspect of his destiny. He was not caught in the gears of history. He was not subject to events. He was controlling events. Jesus would accomplish everything that he set out to do and on his own schedule. Well, as Peter and John sat waiting, no doubt being careful not to burn the roasting lamb, others arrived, each taking their places around the table. It's at this point that some of us may need to rethink the picture that we have in our minds. If you think of the Last Supper and Da Vinci's painting pops into your mind, that's the wrong picture. Disregard that entirely. That's what you would have seen if there had been a video camera recording the event. If they were taking a group photo. Because you'll remember Da Vinci's painting. Here's this long rectangular table. Everyone is seemingly sitting on a bench of some sort, all on one side of the table. When you gather together with your families for Thanksgiving, does everyone sit on one side of the table? That's not what happens. But Da Vinci wanted to get everybody's face in, so that's the only way he could do it, I suppose. He was an amazing artist, obviously. Wasn't much of a historian. So if you're looking for historical accuracy, you don't turn to da Vinci or any other artist of the medieval period or any period for that matter. If if, if the art that you are drawn to is art from the Renaissance period or just before, then you will know that you look at some of these paintings that were done of biblical scenes in the time, and they're very anachronistic. There's one particular painting of the wedding at Cana, for instance, by an Italian artist. 
And if you were to gaze at that painting, you would think you're looking at a picture of the Renaissance Festival. This is an event that happened in the first century, and yet everyone is wearing clothes you know, from the 14, 1500s. It's very strange. Fran and I have the same thing going on in our own home. We have a, a picture in our library at home, a print of a painting by an artist named Edward Hicks. He worked in the mid-1800s. And it's a picture of Noah's Ark. But if you look at it, you begin to understand there's a lot that's wrong with this picture. Because it's the ark and the animals are getting onto the ark, but the ark is already in the water. And you kind of, all right, Noah built the ark. How did he get it in the water? It's this big lake. How do you move something that big? Well, obviously, he didn't, right? The rains came and the ark floated when the water rose. But also, if you look in the background, what you see, in addition to the ark, in addition to the animals getting onto the ark, in the background, faintly painted, are buildings. 19th century buildings. Churches that look like, you know, some New England white clapboard church with a steeple on it. So you've got to be careful, right? Artists are not very good historians. Luke was a very good historian. What Luke is describing, we can believe. Now, Luke doesn't describe everything. So let me try to explain a little bit more about what would have been taking place here. You'll remember that in da Vinci's painting, Jesus and his disciples are seated on what seem to be benches at a long rectangular table and all on one side. But that's not how it was. When the disciples came in, they probably took their places around something called a triclinium. This was a dining table with three couches arranged around it. They would not have been on benches. They would not have been on chairs. You'll note in verse 14, we're told that when the hour had come, he reclined at the table and the apostles with him. And that fits what we know of the time. They would have been reclining on these couches around a very low table. Their heads toward the table and their feet away. And that's how they would have eaten the meal. The time had come. This was the hour, critical moment in salvation history when Jesus is now going to reveal his heart. He says to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say to you, I shall never eat it until, I shall never again eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Jesus had an intense longing for this special time together with his disciples 
at the eating of this last Passover meal. This is also why he had taken such elaborate preparations to ensure that the meal would be undisturbed. He was eager to teach them from that meal the most wonderful truths ever revealed. That meal would be transforming. In celebration, it, it, it would become an acted-out parable of the life and death of Jesus. This is what he is going to lay before them. The author of Hebrews put it this way, that Jesus, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross and despised the shame. And this meal that they are going to participate in is going to be a symbol of that death, of that shame. The center of that joy, however, is that his redeemed will sit with him at the table in the kingdom. I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine from now on until the kingdom of God comes. Jesus longed for this messianic banquet. It's so magnificently described for us in the book of Revelation. There we read, I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true Words of God. Whenever we gather together around the Lord's table, we ought to do so with an eye to that ultimate communion which will take place at the marriage supper of the Lamb. That is why Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 that as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death, how long? Until he comes. And you can hear the eagerness in the voice of Christ as he tells his disciples, I'm not going to share this meal with you again here, but we will share it again. When the kingdom comes in its fullness, we will once again sit around the table and enjoy our fellowship. This is the heart of our Savior. Saving a people for his own possession, yes, but saving a people with whom he will fellowship for all eternity. Unlike the other Gospels, which describe only one cup in the Last Supper, Luke mentions an additional cup 
before the traditional words of institution of the Lord's Supper. Verse 17 says, when he had taken a cup and given thanks, when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he said, take this and share it among yourselves. For I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine from now on until the kingdom of God comes. But then in verse 20, we read that in the same way, he took the cup after they had eaten and said, this cup, which is poured out for you, is the new covenant in my blood. So Luke mentions two cups here. And most believe that the first one is the first cup of the meal. There were various cups during the Passover meal. And the first cup of the Passover Seder describes as, is described as taking place immediately after the opening prayers of the Seder. But unlike the Seder, in, in which the participants are directed to drink from their own cups, Jesus distributes a single cup amongst his disciples. And he's emphasizing the communal aspect of the meal. They were at table fellowship with one another. They were in communion with one another. This is why we often refer to the Lord's table as communion. We are together as we do it. This is why it is improper to take a little wine or grape juice and a little bread all alone in your room and call it the Lord's Supper. You're just having a snack. The Lord's Supper takes place among the Lord's people as we commune with one another, as together we remember what Christ has done. And so there is a mutual and participatory nature of the supper that Jesus is about to institute here. And again, Jesus strongly emphasizes the future communal hope of the, the, the messianic table. As he says there in verse 18, that I will not drink of the fruit of the vine from now on until the kingdom of God comes. Why? Because then he will be together with all of his people. There will be that intimate communion once more. Well, now Jesus is ready to speak those words of the institution of the supper. He addresses first the bread in verse 19. And when he had taken some bread and given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. The unleavened bread was equated in the Seder with the bread of affliction because it reminded them of their persecution in Egypt and how they had to get out quickly. Didn't have time to let any bread rise. Get it cooked and let's go. Deuteronomy chapter, six, chapter 16 verse 3 says this, You shall eat no leavened bread with it. Seven days you shall eat it with unleavened bread, the bread of affliction, for you came out of the land of Egypt in haste, that all the days of your life you may remember the day when you came out of the land of Egypt. So this unleavened bread is now given even greater significance because now we're told that it represents Jesus' body and the affliction that he would endure on the cross. 
So Jesus says this, the bread that he has just broken is my body. And this means, of course, that this this bread that he is holding in his physical hands represents his body. Jesus was not saying that the bread was literally his body. There is no Roman doctrine of transubstantiation taught here or anywhere else in Scripture. Jesus was clearly speaking in symbol when he said, this is my body and this is my blood, as evidenced by the fact that when he spoke the words, he was standing right there in his physical body and blood. Christ was speaking figuratively, just as he did when he said, the field is the world, or I am the door. To his hearers who saw him sitting there in his body holding a piece of bread, this is my body could could, could not mean anything other than this is a symbol of my body. They knew he was speaking figuratively. And you see this same symbolic language used of Jesus in John chapter 6. Why don't you turn with me there for a moment? I want you to see a few things here. What does Jesus say in John chapter 6, verse 48? He says, I am the bread of life. I am the bread of life. Now, jump down to verse 58. Jesus, again speaking of himself, says, He who eats this bread will live forever. Now, is he speaking about the literal eating of his body? Well, no. Is he even speaking of some kind of transubstantiation of a Eucharist of the Lord's Supper? No. Here in the Gospel of John, the Lord's Supper is not instituted until chapter 12. Those to whom he's speaking would have no concept of the Lord's Supper. So what's he talking about? He makes clear throughout this discourse, those who eat this bread is a figurative way of saying those who believe in Christ. How do we know that? We know that because that's exactly what Jesus says. Look back up to verse 48 once again. I am the bread of life. What did he say just before that? Verse 47. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes has eternal life. There's a context there. There's a flow to what Jesus is saying. Those who believe have eternal life. I am the bread of life. His intent is to say, believing in me is eating my body And my blood, which is where he goes next. But he even said it earlier in the chapter. Look back to verse 35. In verse 35, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger. He who believes in me will not thirst. I am the bread of life. He who what? He who participates in the mass? No. He who eats my literal body and blood? No. He who comes to me 
will not hunger. He who believes in me will not thirst. And the belief then defines the coming. What does it mean to come to Jesus? It means to believe in him. It is telling, isn't it, that these disciples who so often could not distinguish between the literal and the figurative in Jesus' teaching have absolutely no reaction to what he's saying here in Luke 22. The disciples were not always too much on the ball. Sometimes they had some difficulty. But not here. Not here at all. One would certainly have expected them to react if they were taking Jesus' words literally. Cannibalism was an abomination to the Jews. And yet Jesus tells them two things here. He tells them that the bread and the wine are his body and blood. And then he tells them to eat those things. And he also tells them that he's going to be be betrayed. So the bread and the wine are my body and blood and you need to eat these things. I'm going to be betrayed. And which one of those things do the disciples respond to? Which troubles them? It's the betrayal. Verse 23 says, They began to discuss among themselves which one of them it might be who was going to do this thing. So, apparently, cannibalism is not an issue. But the betrayal is. Well, no. Because they knew they weren't dealing with a command to cannibalism. They were dealing with symbols. They were dealing with a a metaphor, a figure of speech. They understood that. The body and blood are, like so much of Jesus' teaching, physical elements which reflect a spiritual truth, which is why Paul's emphasis on the Lord's Supper is not on any kind of transformation of the elements, nor does he speak of any saving effect in the participation of the Lord's table. Rather, he speaks of it as a remembrance and a proclamation. This is why the Lord's table has been given to us. But in verse 19, when Jesus uses the words given for you, he's not speaking about the ordinance of the Lord's Supper. He's speaking of the vicarious gift of himself on the cross for our sins. This is my body which is is given for you. His body sacrificed. Christ died for our sins according to the scripture, Paul says. And he commands us, as we have just said, to do this in remembrance of him. Not do this so that by doing this you will be saved. Do this so that you'll remember. They don't even really understand what they're going to be remembering yet. Because Jesus hasn't yet gone to the cross, but all of this is going to make sense afterwards. As we partake of the table, we remember and we meditate upon what Christ has done for us, and we do it in communion with one another. Verse 20, Luke says this, that in the same way he took the cup after they had eaten, saying, this cup 
which is poured out for you, is the new covenant in my blood. And by calling the cup the new covenant in my blood, Jesus is intentionally contrasting his own atoning sacrifice in the shedding of his own blood with the old covenant sacrifices in which the only blood that was shed was the blood of animals. The old covenant was a bloody covenant, and it was a bloody covenant for two reasons. First, to emphasize the seriousness of sin. And second, to teach that the payment of sin is death. The weakness of the old covenant was that it depended upon man's keeping the pledge to obey the law. The people promised in the old covenant, all the words that the Lord has spoken we will do. But we know that's not the case. They couldn't keep the oath. They couldn't and they didn't. And so we come to the glory of the new covenant where Christ's blood does it all. We come to the glory of the new covenant where we realize that if it is up to us, we are doomed and without hope. But if it's up to Christ, there is our hope. There is our salvation. Historically, the idea of the new covenant was not new, but it was made possible by the blood and the blood of Christ. The cup that Jesus offered is what fulfilled the promise of Jeremiah chapter 31, which prophesied this new covenant. Why don't you turn back there with me to Jeremiah chapter 31. This is important for us to see. In Jeremiah chapter 31, beginning with verse 31, we read this. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. And when Jesus says... This is the new covenant in my blood. This is what his disciples would have been thinking about. Ah, Jeremiah. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant I made with their fathers in the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant, which they broke, although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. They will not teach again each man his neighbor and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and their sin I will remember no more. The new covenant is a superior covenant. It is a better covenant than the old covenant. And it is a different covenant. And Jeremiah describes those differences in four ways. The first thing he he mentions is an internal law. Under the old covenant, the law was external. It was written on stone. Under the new covenant, the law is written on the heart. You see that in verse 33. This is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it. 
The problem with the old covenant was it was external. Its laws were written on stone. They provided no internal power to live them out. Now, to be sure, there was always great benefit in the law of God, in the word of God, in memorizing the word of God, but the writing on the heart was beyond the power of unaided man. Something far more radical was needed. A spiritual heart transplant was needed. And this is, in essence, what Christ has done for us. He gives us a new heart. And that new heart has the law of God written upon it. He has made his people partakers of the divine nature, Peter says. We still battle with our fleshly nature, that's certainly true. But through the institution of the new covenant in the blood of Christ, and through the subsequent regeneration, sovereignly brought about by the Holy Spirit, God's laws are no longer external and foreign. They are within us. So in the new covenant, not only is there now an internal law, there is also a superior relationship than that which was manifest under the old covenant. Look at that last part of verse 33 of Jeremiah 31. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And the Old Testament echoes this repeatedly, though it was only fulfilled in the lives of some of those who heard. But this is perfectly fulfilled in all who partake of the new covenant. Through which believers actually come, actually become God's possession. And through which we possess God. God says through Jeremiah, this is going to be a different kind of relationship. I will be their God means that he gives himself to us. And they shall be my people means that he takes us to himself in a new way. They shall be my people in a way that they haven't been my people before. And when this happens, everything in our complex nature is found then in him. In the new covenant, not only is there an internal law and there is a superior relationship, there is also, we're told, a regenerate covenant membership. Look at the first part of verse 34. They will not teach again each man his neighbor and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord. For they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest of them. The old covenant was entered into by a nation. It was a covenant between God and national Israel. And many in that nation did not know God. They were not regenerate people. But those who experience the new covenant by faith in Jesus' blood come one by one as they are born again into a relationship with God. Jesus defined eternal life by saying this, this is eternal life that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Those who are the partakers of the new covenant know God from the least to the greatest. No one needs to say, know the Lord. Because those within the new covenant already know him. This is the difference between the new covenant and the old covenant. The old covenant made with the nation of Israel 
was comprised of both a remnant of believers, but primarily unbelievers. Not so the new covenant. If you don't know Christ, you are not in the new covenant. If you do know him, if you've come to Christ through repentance and faith, then you are a part of God's new covenant people. And so in this new covenant of which Jesus speaks, there is not an internal law, or there is is rather now an internal law, there is a superior relationship, there is a regenerate covenant membership, and praise God, there is also a finished forgiveness. For those in the new covenant, God promises, I will forgive their iniquity. And their sin I will remember no more. And this, brothers and sisters, is precisely what the Old Covenant could not do. Under the Old Covenant, sins were covered, but they were never completely forgiven because they were never truly forgotten. They were covered, awaiting and pointing to the true forgiveness which would come through the death of Christ. This is why... These Passover sacrifices, the Day of Atonement, these things would happen year after year after year after year. Whereas we are told that the atoning sacrifice of our Savior, Jesus Christ, was once and for all. And so the disciples reclined on the, uh, that, 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 that Passover there in the upper, upper room and the candles flicker lower and lower. And they saw and they heard the Savior of the world unlocking the mystery of salvation. He's saying, this is my body which is given for you. This is my blood poured out for you. It is the new covenant. What Jeremiah had promised is here. I am instituting the new covenant in my shed blood. And as he spoke those words, he's not calling people to participate in a new ritual. He's calling them, he's calling us to participate in a new life. A life which is found only in him and only by faith and repentance. If you have never eaten his body, if you have never drank his blood, you can do so today. Not in any literal sense, but in the sense in which Jesus speaks of it in John chapter 6. Believe in him. Turn from your sin and trust in him. Do that. And all that lies behind the symbolism of the Lord's Supper will be yours. You will enter into a new covenant in which all of your sins are forgiven and forgotten forever. And in which you can live in anticipation of that greatest of all suppers, which yet awaits the people of God. Father, thank you for the great and gracious promise that comes to us in the new covenant. We pray, Father, that we would walk in the light of these things, that we would be encouraged by them, and that we would give you thanks always for all that you have done in Jesus. It is in his name that we pray. Amen.